Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. This is Sprogcast episode 30 and I'm Karen Hall. I've got some bad news for you today, which is that I don't have Mark with me, so I'm basically sitting in a room talking to myself. It's going to be different than usual and we've got some really good excuses so basically Mark is um, really busy at the moment doing um, running some rewind training with Mia Scotland um, he's then going off on holiday which I think we are all allowed to do and I'm really busy with work for most of September obviously it's still the school holidays as I talk but it won't be by the time you're listening to this but when you do listen to this I will actually be away on a long distance walk with my mum so we have got so little time and all we've been able to do is um, let me record it all by myself. He sent me a tiny little bit of recording which I'll put and play for you later. What we have decided to do is make this the Birthrights special. Birthrights is Sprogcast's chosen charity and um, we think it's really important to support this charity that protects human rights in childbirth. If you would like to find out more about Birthrights their website is birthrights.org.uk. They've been really busy lately because of all the furore in the press about uh, midwives and whether or not they support normal birth Um, and they work tirelessly to support women's rights in birth and um, we think that you should have a look at them and know about them at the very least. We are going to replay one of our favourite interviews from episode four, which is a long, long time ago. And that's going to be Rebecca Schiller talking about risk in childbirth. If you're more interested in finding out more about um, birthrights and you haven't listened to previous episodes, we've got um, Joanna Reese davis in episode 22, which is also the episode where Attila Jonas talks about woman-centred caesareans, and that's a brilliant one. Um, we've got Rebecca Schiller again on Sprogcast Live in episode 16. And coming up at Sprogcast Live in Leeds, um, Rinika Schramm, who is an obstetrician and one of Birthrights trustees, will be there as one of our guest speakers. If you'd like to come to Sprogcast Live in Leeds, there are still plenty of tickets available. It's on Eventbrite. You just need to search for events in Leeds or put Sprogcast in and um, you will get all the details you can buy tickets and um, they'll be 10 or 15 pounds depending how quick you are about it because we do have some early bird tickets 28th of october two o'clock in the afternoon at a church in round hay the address is there on the eventbrite page i'm sorry i should have had that for you shouldn't i and our brilliant speakers who are going to be there are sheena byron who's been on the podcast before author of raw really great book about compassion in midwifery care we've got fran bailey a colleague of mine from nct who works with asylum seeking and refugee women in leeds um, we've got rinika shram as i've just mentioned rosie knowles who is a gp attachment pair a sling library consultant um, to talk to us mia scotland specialist in um, postnatal depression and trauma and uh, counselor and psychotherapist and we've got Claire Harbottle, a midwife, a local midwife with the Yorkshire Storks. It's going to be brilliant. And we're going to have um, people from the audience asking questions. So doing it much more of a Q&A style than we've done before. So go on Eventbrite, buy your ticket, join us. It's going to be an ace. So Birthrights feels like a particularly important charity right now in the current climate of mistrust of midwifery. It's heartbreaking 
to read and hear stories from women who didn't feel well cared for during birth, particularly when those stories play into the narrative of good birth versus bad birth. Most of the people I know in the birth world want to support women to have a positive experience, but that doesn't mean we approve of one type of birth over another. And perpetuating this myth does women a real disservice. I've um, started a new antenatal course just last night and really wanted to kind of convey that just because you're doing an NCT course it doesn't mean that you only one kind of birth is approved of so while birth can go off the plan it doesn't mean that you have to feel unsafe during the experience and I really want to help them to feel empowered to make sure they are well cared for well involved in all the decisions and um, that the birth is something that they will look back on positively it's really hard to get ranty without mark so i'm just going to play rebecca's interview to you right now okay so for today's episode of sprogcast we are chatting with rebecca schiller hi rebecca hi there karen would you like to introduce yourself sure well um Firstly, I guess I'm a mother. Um, I have two children. And um, through that, um, I became a doula. And um, I am still a slightly occasional doula. Um, and I also work with Doula UK on their um, board of directors. Um, most of my time at the moment is taken up with um, the human rights and childbirth charity that I co-chair, which is called Birthrights. And if you want to check us out, um, the website is birthrights.org.uk and we're also on Twitter at birthrights.org um, so lots of work there campaigning um, offering training um, and um, really just getting involved in um, women's rights in childbirth and reproductive rights more generally um, and I guess to um, finish off I'm also um, interested in writing about these kind of issues and um, I guess we're going to talk a little bit more about um, some of the stuff I've written about uh, in this podcast I imagine. Yes we are that's definitely the plan and you've got an ebook. I do it's available um, on Amazon and um, via the Guardian Shorts website and it's called All That Matters um, and if you um, find me on Twitter I'm at Hackney Doula the um, link to um, my ebook is in um, my little profile there at 199 excellent value because it's so much packed into it it's a really good read thank you i think um birthrights is obviously a really really important organization doing crucial work it's something an area that's quite shocking to come into and realize that there's so much that needs to be done um, i was fascinated by the fact that you came to this from a feminist and women's rights point of view so i was going to ask you first why why childbirth is a feminist issue it's the fundamental feminist issue i didn't think of myself particularly as a feminist um before i became interested in childbirth which i'm totally ashamed about i, I did an english literature degree and i remember one of our first seminars um the male professor asked our seminar group um to raise our hands if if we were feminists and only one person raised their hand and it was the only boy in the room um and i look back on that often with with shame but it was through getting involved in the birth world that I really realised the continual sort of inequalities that women face and also just how um, our lives are changed and shaped by our sort of reproductive capacities. Um, and in, in doing the research for, for my book and in, in working for birthrights, it, it sort of became apparent to me that the fact that um, women are treated differently from men and um, all the things from the you know the little small inequalities some really terrible things that happen here and across the world are based on the fact that we have 
this ability to bear children. Um, we might not be interested in having children yet. We might never have them. We might not be able to have children. We might be, you know, totally focused in the other direction. But what makes us different is that we have this reproductive capacity. So for me, um, birth and pregnancy is kind of the ultimate feminist issue because if we don't get it right there, how can we begin to assert our right to be treated as sort of human beings like any other throughout the rest of our lives? So it's the the sort of central principle. Yeah, and I, I know there are lots of other things and, and also that, you know, there's a lot of crossover between other inequalities and other priorities and other difficulties that women face. So women from different um, socioeconomic backgrounds experience birth in different ways. Um, you know, there's definitely an element of, um, you know, ethnic minorities and different racial groups have these different experiences of um, childbirth. And, and so there's a lot at play, things cross over. It's not the only thing that's important. But but for me, it's, it's something crucial to focus on and hasn't really been focused on, certainly in in, in recent years um, as you know a feminist issue I think in, in the right way and, and what I'm really pleased about at the moment is I'm seeing lots of different groups beginning to take on childbirth as a feminist issue and, and Dennis Walsh um, and a few others wrote a brilliant article I think in Midders about um, why midwives should be feminists recently that's been widely shared and, and, and I think there's a, a, a real movement to, to bring the principles of feminism back into discussions of birth which I think is really positive. It really is. Dennis is great. I've got a YouTube clip which I've put on our Facebook groups saying um, that antenatal visits are basically a risk assessment process that virtually promises women a risk-free experience of birth. Yes, I was actually talking yesterday um, with a group, different people, academics and and other organisations about the idea of risk and also the kind of um, the partner to risk which is surveillance and we were talking about how and, and midwives are part of this meeting how antenatal visits are much less about getting to know somebody, covering their needs and wants, and much more about safeguarding and risk assessments and categorization. This, obviously, the screening that, that's done um, is, a, is a part of that. And increasingly, um, midwives are saying that they feel there's a lot of sort of mandatory boxes that women have to, to sort of tick and agree with in order that they can be kind of correctly risk stratified. Um, and that doesn't necessarily make for the kind of care that women feel um, is safe in in, um, both a physical and also emotional sense. No, I was going to say, is that helpful to have that level of almost checking on women? For me, it's incredibly problematic. I I think I appreciate that, you know, we have a big system. We, you know, we have a high birth rate and there, of course, have to be measures in place to ensure that women are offered the kind of care that is most appropriate for their needs. And some of that will be based on making clinical judgments and and offering them tests and some of that will be of course speaking to them and um offering them um continuity of carer and and beginning to um develop a relationship with them having antenatal care very biased towards screening processes and tests and box ticking and seeing a different midwife at every appointment we know from the evidence a it's not what women want it's not how they feel comfortable and it's not likely to make those who might not have the time or the money or the capacity to attend antenatal appointments to do that and and also it's not necessarily going to to improve um outcomes and um i think i think it's problematic and particularly when we see increasing levels of social services being involved in cases 
where women are declining things, women are not attending antenatal appointments, women are making choices in childbirth. And, and at Birthrights, we do get calls from women who feel that social services have been called in because they've made a, a choice that they feel is appropriate antenatally or, or in labour. Um, and we don't feel that's um, that's appropriate um, or, or fair to that women. That seems very paternalistic. Yes, it does seem very paternalistic. And of course, you know, on the flip side, midwives do have a responsibility to um, make sure they're identifying women who might need additional support and help. But there's a difference between building a supportive relationship and um, surveillance. I was listening to some health visitors chatting at a clinic I was at the other day, um, talking about their postnatal work and saying that basically 90% of it now is safeguarding. Yeah. What's interesting to me is is the word safe in safeguarding. I think there's too much guarding and not enough safe. Women who are offered a named midwife who sees them antenatally and you know in a dream world through labor and postnatally you know if they do have problems if they do have difficulties then that midwife is likely to pick that up and it is likely to help them keep safe and help them keep their baby safe a whole range of different people sort of tag teaming and a health visitor being beamed in to do safeguarding doesn't feel very safe to me it feels like a way of getting women to feel backed into a corner um, and we know that that's not likely to to make them feel um able to divulge things to to people who they should be building a kind of trusting relationship with. You're kind of talking about a, a bigger picture then because you're including the mother in that. It almost seems as though safeguarding is focused entirely on the needs of the baby and the needs of the mother are irrelevant to that. Well, indeed. And I think, you know, there's an increasing slew towards only focusing on the needs of the baby throughout the maternity system. And obviously we need to design a system that allows women and the healthcare professionals they choose to invite into their pregnancies and births to help them keep their babies as safe as possible. Prioritising one over the other seems to me completely counterintuitive. You know, one of the things that I, I sort of talk about in the book is that, you know, the vast, vast majority of women want to keep their babies safe. And it seems to me then that we need to design a system that allows women to do that, that supports them to do that, and that looks after them. Because this is a time when women really do need looking after. And, and if we're going to provide safe care for, for mothers and babies, then throughout pregnancy and birth, the focus has to be on providing the woman with respectful care and the chance to, to make the choices she needs to, to keep her baby and her family safe. So who is saying, as your cleverly titled book implies who is saying that all that matters is a healthy baby i think it's become a sort of cultural assumption now actually i mean i hear it from women themselves um and and normally it's said when they've just expressed something that makes it very clear that actually there's something that's happening to them that they they don't like they have to say that to justify you know obviously i'm not important i know i'm not important society has explained that to me innumerable times um i think it's reinforced by the media the media handles everything to do with reproductive rights very badly but particular particularly birth and infant feeding choices are highly designed to make women feel as if they are being selfish for having opinions there are some fabulous most midwives and doctors um almost all want to provide great care and came to the profession because they they are caring people the system that they're in is not designed to allow space and time and the kind of care that allows women to say well this is what I need how can we make that happen so when women do want to make a choice 
they often have to fight for it. And then if they want to make a choice that the healthcare professionals don't feel is the right one, they will often have the all that matters is a healthy baby. Well, we don't want to, you know, compromise the health of your baby discussion. And that's often done in a, in a, a very sort of emotionally manipulative way. So I think it's being reinforced to women at a number of different levels in the system and uh, socially and, and in the media. Uh, and it seems completely normal, you know, to most people now, if you say all that matters is a healthy baby, not many people get cross about that unless you're in, in you know, uh, the rarefied world of um, midwives and doulas and obstetricians who are thinking about that in a kind of critical way. You know, I was there with my tiny baby I was having a lot of feeding problems I was in pain I got this giant episiotomy I'd had this horrendous thing happen to me but I couldn't stop thinking about I was having flashbacks about you know I really felt like a piece of meat and and then I would begin to sort of tell somebody family or friends or the midwife visiting me I'd tell them a sort of snippet of the story and the response I would get is this well you know oh that's terrible but you know at least you've got your healthy baby that's all that matters and that would silence them pretty effectively. Um, and um, I, I, it's incredibly damaging to women and to the families that they're then trying to build. I'm thinking about that scenario where the alternative response from the midwife is that she gets into a long conversation. She actually sits down and cares and perhaps she doesn't have time. Absolutely. Again, you know, I think it's very easy to make these conversations sound critical of individual, yeah. individual healthcare practitioners. And, you know, the more I get to know those who are working in the system the more I'm full of admiration for them and realize that I just couldn't do it um and yeah if you've got a if you've got a 10 minute appointment you've got a huge caseload you're you're doing on sort of day three postnatal visits can you open that can of worms probably not would it be nice to be able to say to the woman look I can see this was a difficult experience I don't have time to pay that enough attention right now but we can schedule you with an appointment with ex-person the birth afterthought service the counseling service and you can really explore it then that would be great mm. um uh, but again resources aren't designed that way and 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 i don't feel at the moment postnatal visits and you were saying the same about health visitors the idea of keeping the mother safe in terms of her emotional well-being that's kind of been lost um, so that's not a priority that's not something that midwives have at the top of their incredibly long to-do list yeah, with antenatal classes, I, um, when we talk about birth, I ask them what's what's what matters, what's important to you, what, what what's going to make a positive birth for you, and they say, a healthy baby, and I yeah. say, let's look at the statistics. Why are you setting the bar so low? Yeah. So what what levels of risk are we really talking about? Well, the the birthplace in England study, which is I guess the most the, the biggest and most recent and most robust thing to to look at confirmed that giving birth in England was incredibly safe for all women and all babies wherever they give birth and whatever choices they make. Now I'm going to forget the figures off the top of my head but um, it was under one percent of births that recorded a bad outcome. A bad outcome was not a, a stillborn baby. There were so few um, stillborn babies in that study of nearly 70,000 women that, that they, they couldn't report on that so they included um, babies who had some trauma from from birth some of which would leave no um, lasting um, damage and some of which would leave some serious damage so 
less than 1% of babies in the UK, I think it was 0.3 something um, in hospital and um, midwife-led units and second-time mothers at home, and um, a slightly higher number for first-time mothers having home births. So they're very reassuring statistics. There's an interesting paper written by Susan Bewley and her colleague looking at the point at which the interventions we make to uh, minimise risk actually start to create risk. Um, and I also talked to um, the wonderful obstetrician Amali Lokugamaj, who explained that we can design the most fabulous system in the world, um, but there will always be an element of risk. We're not going to make childbirth risk-free. It's just never going to happen. We can make it incredibly tiny risk which has happened but it's never going to be risk-free and and I think you're right in kind of implying that we're we do say to women that we have this fabulous system use it and everything will be great do what we say follow the path that we've told you to follow take the right tests give birth where we say listen to the good doctor and everything will be fine and 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 actually you know there are risks at every every you know, choice you make, there are some tiny little risks. And I think we could do with being a bit more honest with women about that because um, women feel cheated by the system when something goes wrong that they weren't expecting. Mm. Um, and, and I understand that because it's certainly not framed in, in a way that suggests that, that there will be a risk, whatever you do, even if you do do exactly what you're told. Yeah, but it's very hard to talk to people antenatally in that language. It is. But perhaps that's because we've been infantilizing pregnant women for so long we've forgotten that they kind of have brains I mean pregnant women realize that you know that that is a distant possibility and I think you're right it's incredibly difficult to talk to women antenatally in a way that isn't fear-mongering I'm not sure we're providing women with the best kind of antenatal preparation if that's what they want um and I think we should think critically about how we do that in a way that doesn't try to protect them and for me that's about finding ways to present them with information like some statistics that are very reassuring I run a home birth group and we talk about the birthplace in England study um but when people ask about safety I quote that that study we discuss it we debate it we talk about first-time mothers and I just give them the information um and 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 that's there they you know we talk about what a bad outcome means um and sometimes people who come to the group have had a previous stillbirth and and we make it okay to talk about that and we also make it okay to talk about the good things and I think the positive birth movement does that pretty well as well but I think right it's incredibly difficult you don't want to say to anybody you know there's a chance that something might go wrong um but there is a chance that something might go wrong and um I think finding ways to have honest and non-fear-mongering conversations are, are good because that that conversation does happen then if a woman say wants to decline induction um she can find herself in a very difficult conversation with an obstetrician who's saying to her well you know the risk of your baby dying if you decline this induction is huge um you know you you're putting your baby's life at risk you know and and that's not the time to be having that that conversation about the potential um poor outcomes i think it's it 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 should be a much more rational and um evidence based and also woman based discussion not in too um obvious a way you know throughout throughout the the pregnancy i don't think we need to protect women from 
just the basic yeah. facts of life. <laughs> and having that conversation at 41 weeks is giving her no room to manoeuvre at all. Of course not. If she's, you know, she's desperate to give birth by that point anyway. And, and um, you know, no woman wants to do anything that's going to put her baby at risk. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's which risk? Um, and that, that's often the discussion that isn't had. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it for them. So there's there's a real tension then between the personal experience of birth. This is a quote from your book, tension between the personal experience of birth and birth as a public property. Yes. <laughs> so birth has to be public property um, in that it makes sense for us to try and make childbirth as positive, as safe, as economical an experience as possible that are we are so lucky to have the NHS and the NHS has to run in a smooth and efficient way so there have to be public discussions about how to make childbirth affordable um, and, and it's such an important thing that of course there's going to be policy decisions about um, how much money is spent on different birth locations there's going to be um, discussions and debates by healthcare professionals about the evidence about safety about risk there's going to be those discussions they're going to happen and, and the discussions themselves may be problematic. The fact that we are having them, for me, is entirely sensible. If we were just ignoring this giant area um, of, of, of women's lives and the beginning of all of us, it would be ridiculous. But for me, what happens is that these the public property side of things is, is kind of where the discussion ends. Mm. And we've forgotten that fundamentally childbirth is a private, individual, and intensely um, vulnerable and important experience in the life of an individual woman. Um, and in her life, it's it's a big deal. It won't happen that often, and it has huge consequences. Um, and the public debate overshadows that. And, and I think women are made to feel that their own experience of it is either politicised by that debate or just completely negated. Um, and I think what needs to be reintroduced into the public property side of thing is a great big chunk of looking at birth as an experience in the life of an individual woman. And for me, and it's something I've been speaking quite a bit about recently, and I, um, I'm really um, excited about, I'm chairing the afternoon of the St. George's physiological birth promoting normality um conference and my chair's address is going to be is it time to stop promoting normality which <laughs> might get um <laughs> might get uh, <laughs> but you know i think we've got to stop framing the public discussions in the way that we're framing them because they do politicize individual women's experiences i think if the public discussion was about how can we design a service that fits the needs of individual women and respects their basic human dignity and their autonomy, everything else falls into place. Um, and um, I think because women don't want ridiculous things, you know, we haven't got loads of women who want access to bouncy castles during, you know, during birth. You know, women want generally a whole load of sensible things. Um, women's experiences and women what women report as being important to them things like continuity of carer and being treated with respect um, having access to things they need are also the things that the evidence shows makes birth safer are also the things that show that um, 
makes uh, birth more economical <laughs> for um, for the um, NHS. Um, and also, interestingly, uh, from the birth rights perspective, are what the law and human rights principles um, show that we should be doing. So everything agrees. If, so if we can frame that public discussion in that way, I think it would make a better experience for individual women who are going through those journeys. But that's a big, um, a big shift. It means ditching stuff like promoting normality per se um not not making that um a focus and that that's very difficult it also impacts on how we talk about breastfeeding i think um and um it, it, it's it's a big change in how we talk about birth um and it, it 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 will be very difficult for people to accept but i think it for me it's the answer it is a huge reframing and i can see the logic of it but i can also see where the um, almost fear comes from in admitting that women should have the autonomy to make decisions for themselves that aren't necessarily in the best interests of their baby i think there is um and there will always be women that make bad in inverted commas decisions or decisions that have bad outcomes or risky decisions there are of course plenty of examples of when healthcare professionals make bad decisions for women. Um, so one of the things that I try to do in the book is look at the consequences of placing the responsibility for making those decisions away from the woman and showing how um, giving someone else power to make that particular decision opens up a whole series of possibilities for women to be terribly disrespected abused, assaulted during birth, but then broader than that, to have their reproductive rights and choices curtailed um, and um, really reduced to kind of a, a subclass um, of, of, of humanity. And I think for me, there's no, there just isn't anyone else who can make that decision. Most women um, want to take on board recommendations um, and um, pretty much all women want a, a, a safe and positive outcome for themselves. Um, so I don't think we need to be frightened that there's going to be, you know, millions of women making incredibly risky choices. But women do still, within the current system, make choices that come with um, an uncomfortable level of risk for some people. For me, a lot of times when that happens, it's that, that women are not making a positive, empowered decision, but are, are making a decision that comes from fear because they know they're going to be coerced into something that they don't want. So I'm, I'm thinking about women who have had a previous cesarean section, would quite like to be in hospital when they try for their VBAC, but the rules about what they have to do in hospital for them um, are reminding them of the terrible experience they had last time, or they feel are going to minimise their chances of having the vaginal birth that they want. So they feel, um, they, they ask if they can use the birth centre, they're told no, they ask if they could use a pool and a telemetry monitor and they're told it's not ready. And so they're then in the stark choice between having their baby at home with um, midwives who may not be supportive um, or no midwife at all and or going into um, this environment they don't feel is safe and for me that's not freedom of choice that's that's women who may um, make a decision that the risk on either side is too great for them and there would have been a, a, a compromise in the middle that they would have felt comfortable with but that's just not an option that, that's being offered to them yeah. so I think that the current system also promotes a level of behaviour that 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 could be described as risky, and um, I don't I don't think we we need to be afraid of of women taking those risks on themselves. 
dogs. Um, women are sensible creatures, and, um, and and most of them will will assess the risk and, and and do what they feel you know is right for themselves with. Um, excellent advice and support from from the people who um, have the clinical expertise to to do that. So we've kind of circled back to where we started, where it's about respect for women, giving yeah. sensible, evidence based information, yeah, and framing it, you know, being realistic. I think so. I mean, and honest. Yeah, honest, realistic, compassionate. You know, at, at the at the centre of it all is um, ensuring. A woman really understands what's happening and that if she wants to do something that's kind of off the beaten track that there is a good plan in place to support her that she understands what the risks are but if she does understand what those risks are then they are her risks at a, a reunion for an antenatal group last night and one of the fathers turned to me and said really apologetically you don't want to hear this karen but we thought that our cesarean was really good you you had a good birth yeah fantastic we all have our personal journeys, you know, whether we've had children or not ourselves, but our personal experiences around birth. So we all know what was right for us or was right for our friend or was right for our mother. We find scary. And it's very hard not to bring that to bear on other people's conversations and, and other people's decisions. You know, you know, so it's taken me a while to stop, um, you know, sort of zealot-like belief that, you know, most people should be doing that. <laughs> But the more you listen to women's stories, there's just this kernel that goes through. When women have had a positive birth, wherever it was, in whatever way, cesarean section, in the hospital, with pain relief, without pain relief, you know, they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about people being nice to them and listening to them and nobody doing anything to them without their permission and um, feeling like the human being they were before and um, afterwards. And, and and that's it. That that's for me. That's where we should stop. And that's what we should be focusing on. Because yeah. so many women in every different kind of birth, every different choice they're making, are not having that. If if we can get that right, can get the kind of system that can genuinely provide that, then it will provide the kind of antenatal care that allows women to make um, the choices they need to, and everything else falls into place. I think that there's a fear in people who are keen to promote normal birth that by giving that up, we kind of accept a rising cesarean section rate. And I don't think that's true because most women I speak to don't want a cesarean. Some do, and it's very important. I think if a woman wants an elective cesarean, she gets an elective cesarean. Um, and it's a very valid choice, and I think that's fine. Um, but I don't think we're opening the floodgates to millions of women wanting an elective cesarean. Um, I, I think most women, ideally, just want to have a pretty straightforward birth. That's been really interesting, and I hope that people will find that absolutely um, useful learning stuff really insightful oh it's a pleasure it's always great to talk about this um thing i um, could talk about it all day so <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much it's been really nice to talk to you okay thanks karen bye-bye bye So I also want to say, as we always do, our grateful thanks to Pinter and Martin for sponsoring the podcast and um, helping us to get out there and be listened to. They are such a great publisher and there are so many new titles coming out at the moment. I've just read an advanced copy of Growing Up Pregnant by Deirdre Curley and I can tell you that I really, really enjoyed it. So it's part autobiographical story and part pregnancy guide and I think that she gets the blend exactly right. This is a book that I would give to any pregnant woman because she conveys the feelings, the, the, the physical feelings and the emotional feelings of being pregnant um, in a way that I think 
most pregnant women could probably relate to. I don't want to detract from the fact that she wrote, she was specifically writing about being pregnant as a 19 year old, which is unusual um, nowadays. But I really felt that the book had absolutely universal appeal. What else have they got coming out? They've got uh, Michelle O'Dance, The Birth of Homo, the Marine Chimpanzee, already available, 9 99 on the website. Um, and don't forget that if you're ordering books from Pinter and Martin, you can get a wonderful 10% discount by using the code SPROGCAST at the checkout. Um, so we've got a little treat for you now. If you're missing Mark, you've probably been aware of the fact that I'm standing for president of NCT. He um, grilled me about that in our previous episode. And if you want to go on Facebook and find out more about me and my campaign, it's uh, facebook.com slash NCT Karen. Um, and there's a little video up there just explaining what I'm what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And Mark had something to say as well. Well, I'm going to be as straightforward as I can be. Uh, because I know you know uh, I'm biased. Uh, I want Karen Hall to be the next president of the NCT. Now, I am biased because Karen's my friend and colleague. She produces Sprodcast. She's a co-presenter on Sprodcast. She does the lion's share of the interviewing of experts on Sprodcast. I am biased, but I'm biased on the basis of knowledge and experience. And over the two years I've worked with Karen, I have found her to be insightful, to have the ability to kind of like suspend her judgment or her preconceived ideas when it comes to looking at research, when it comes to looking at issues in the media. She has a, a very clear um, perspective on, on issues that are occurring within the birth world. Her expertise is breastfeeding, but her knowledge covers a wide sphere uh, of information in relationship to the birth world. She has a long history of working as a volunteer um, and as a breastfeeding uh, support uh, worker, teacher and trainer within the NCT organisation. I have no doubts in my mind whatsoever that she has all of the skills and qualities that are going to be required to promote and support the work of NCT nationwide. That's why, uh, with a deep sense of sincerity and conviction, I want to encourage you, if you're a member of the NCT, to vote for Karen Hall. Trust me, he's making me blush, um, but he did insist I put that in. Thanks, Mark. So the last thing to tell you about today is our October episode, which is all about infant feeding. These are episodes we had ready for September, but haven't been able to use this month because we really wanted to both have the chance to talk about them together. So they're already waiting to, to roll and I'll put them together into our episode coming out on the 25th of October. We have got two brilliant interviews, Dr. Amy Brown, um, so our breastfeeding specialist um, researcher um, who has got two books out, Breastfeeding Uncovered and Why Starting Solids Matters and a lot to say about feeding. And we've got Alison Thewlis MP who you're probably aware of um, her support for women in general and breastfeeding in particular and she talks about how she does that within the parliamentary process. We should be back to our usual format by then. I really hope so. I'm very lonely without Mark. Thank you so much for listening. So if you want to say hi, just keep me company, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. We're at Sprogcast on Twitter. Um, or actually come and see us in person at Sprogcast Live in Leeds. We'd really love that. Thanks for listening. Bye.
You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.